mentioned earlier, next weekend is our prayer conference, and we're looking forward to having Dave and Kim come as our special guests, and they'll be helping us to focus on prayer. And I thought, as I was planning out my preaching schedule, that I might use today as kind of a prelude to us focusing on prayer, and I wanted to deal with one particular aspect of the praying life and, and consider a problem that I think that has vexed and confused uh, Christians throughout the ages, and that is the problem of unanswered prayer. It seems to me that everybody who takes God seriously and takes prayer seriously must deal sooner or later with this problem of unanswered prayer. That there are times in our Christian journey when we call out to the Lord and it seems that there is no answer, there is no explanation. We pour our hearts out to God in prayer. We call upon Him seeking His goodness and yet there is no answer. And I think that the dilemma for many Christians is, well, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with this problem of no answer, the mystery of unanswered prayer. As a pastor, I am confronted continually with this problem and question. People will say to me, well, Pastor Rick, does the Word of God not say that ask and it shall be given to you, knock and you shall find and the door shall be open? Didn't the Lord make that promise to us? Well, yes, He did. That's His Word to us and that is His promise to us fulfilled in Jesus. And they'll come back at me, push back, and say, well, I've been praying. I've been praying for my husband to stop drinking, and yet he hasn't stopped. I've been praying for a job, and yet I haven't yet found one. I've been praying for my wife's uh, situation of emotional depression, but virtually I can see that nothing has changed in her experience. I've been praying for guidance, and yet it doesn't seem that the path is clearing up at all, and no guidance or direction from God has come, and on and on the list of uh, complaints go. I couldn't begin to count how many people that I've counseled and talked with over this mystery, or you could even call it the agony of unanswered prayer. And it seems to me that this is not only our experience, but as you look at the lives of men and women in Scripture and down through Christian history, that you find many examples of people who struggled with this. I pray to God and yet there is no answer. Why? Job is one of those individuals. Job in the Old Testament. You'll recall, if you know the story of Job, that some terrible things happened to this faithful servant of the Lord. Job lost his wealth, he lost his family, his children, he lost his reputation, he lost his own personal health. And finally, as we look at the journey of Job, he is, we find him sitting in a, in a heap of ashes outside the city and his miserable friends come along and tell him that, that obviously he must have done something wrong or God wouldn't be punishing him like this. That's Job's particular problem. But in a sense, it seems to me that the deeper problem of Job is that he couldn't get an answer from God as to why. 
Why is this happening to me? I've been a faithful servant of yours, God. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? And though the suffering was bad enough, what kind of made the suffering even worse was the fact that there was no answer as he seeks an answer from God. We get a a window into Job's soul condition in Job chapter 30 when he complains to God in verse 16. This is how terrible things have become. And Job says, and now my life, it ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. I am, in other words, Job says, I am absolutely miserable. In verse 19, speaking of God, he said, he throws me into the mud and I am reduced to dust and ashes. And here's the nub of the complaint of Job. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. The problem of unanswered prayer. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but God, you just look at me. You don't do anything. You just look at me. I cry out to you, but you do not answer. In other words, Job is saying, God, why are you not keeping office hours? Why are you not responding to emails? Why are you unresponsive to my prayers? Is there any effect? Is there any power in praying to you, God? I've cried out to you, and yet you don't seem to respond. There's a wonderful little vignette in the book, the classic book, Huckleberry Finn, written by Mark Twain. I don't know if you recall it, but there's this interchange between Huck and his elder, Miss Watson. And I went to the, my bookshelf and pulled it off and found the paragraph that speaks of this, where uh, he, he's talking about prayer, Huck is. And Huck says this, Miss Watson took me in the closet and she prayed but nothing come of it. She told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I would get it. But it weren't so. I tried it. Once I prayed, and I got a fish line, but not hooks. It weren't any good to me without hooks. By and by, one day, I asked Miss Watson to try for me. She said I was a fool, She never told me why, and I couldn't make it out no way. I set me down one time back in the woods, and I had a long think about it. No, I says to myself, there ain't nothing in it. And don't we feel that way sometimes? That there ain't nothing in this prayer thing. That there really is no power that God doesn't respond to our prayers. We call out to Him, and yet the, the heavens are as brass, and, and there seems to be no answer. We see that in Job's life. All the scaffolding is stripped away in his life. And I know that there are some of you who are seated in this room this morning, and, and there's no scaffolding, there's no props in your life. They've all been knocked from beneath you. Some of you are struggling in, in the midst of a painful relationship. Or something that you've been working on hard for a long time is not succeeding. And and it's failing, in fact. It's going down the tubes and you keep praying about it. And yet, there doesn't seem to be any change. You just keep praying about it and there's no change. It just remains static. 
For some of you, wealth or security or comfort is being stripped away and you're beginning to wonder, you know, I pray, but does God really listen? Does God really hear my prayers? Can, can He help me? Does God really care? What I'd like to do for the rest of our time this morning is to focus on, on three truths that I think are absolutely essential for us to, to take hold of and that will help us as we face the challenge of trusting God in difficult times when prayers that we make to God seem to go unanswered, when God seems silent. Three truths. The first is this. That our deepest comfort will not come from having answers, but our deepest comfort will come from knowing God. Job accuses God of two things. He says, God, you don't care about me. You've forgotten me. You've abandoned me. And even if you do remember me and you care about me, then he accuses God of being unable to help him. He says, if if you do care about me, then you're not willing to to be able to help me. And, and Job pours out his complaint to God, and you can read it, and we, we don't have time to read the chapter after chapter of God, uh, of Job pouring out his complaint to God. But in, in chapter 38, in fact, you might want to turn there in, in your Bible or the one in the pew rack in front of you to chapter 38. Finally, God uh, comes to the end of his toleration of listening to Job's complaint. And, and he comes to a place where he's going to answer Job. And in chapter 38 of Job, God chooses to speak not in a still small voice, but chapter 38 and verse 1 says that the Lord answered Job out of the storm, out of the whirlwind. And he said to Job in verse 3, brace yourself, Job, like a man, because I'm going to question you. Your time of questioning is now over. Job, I'm going to now question you and you shall answer me. What is God saying to Job? He's saying, Job, you better buckle your seatbelt because I have a word to speak to you. And in chapter 38, God begins this series of questions. Interesting, if you look at this particular part of Job, the series of questions that God asked Job lasts for four chapters chapter 38 through chapter 42. And it's one question after another that God asks Job, kind of like in a machine gun fashion. He keeps throwing these questions at Job. And look at the nature of these questions that he asks Job. Verse 2, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Verse 4, Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Verse 5, Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Jump down in chapter 38 to verse 12. Hey, Job, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? Verse 25. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm? Verse 35. Do you send the lightning bolts on their way, Job? Hey, you that's complaining. Do you send the lightning bolts? Chapter 39, 
verse 1. God continues in his questions to Job. Do you, Job, know when the mountain goats give birth? And on and on and on, God just keeps throwing his questions at Job. And Job's response to this is is seen for us in two separate ways. In chapter 40 and verse 3, Job's response to God's question is, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. You see, when he's questioned by God, Job all of a sudden realizes that he's finite, that he is dust. But God's not through with Job yet, because if you look on in chapter 40, God warns him again in verse 7 of chapter 40, says, Brace yourself, Job, like a man. I'm going to question you, and you shall answer me. And he goes on again with this series of questionings. And then in verse uh, verse 5, yes, verse 5 and verse 6 of chapter 42, God's questioning is coming to an end. Chapter 42, then Job replied to the Lord. I know that you can do all things. No plans of yours can be thwarted. Down to verse 5. My ears had heard of you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I will despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What's going on here? God is getting Job in a place and he says, Job, I want you to remember who it is that you're speaking to. I want you to remember that I am the Creator and you are the creature. I want you to remember that I am infinite and that you are finite. I want you to remember that you are but dust. In all of this questioning, God reveals His glory and His greatness and His power to Job. And with each of these successive questions that come, you can almost see Job kind of shrinking. Little by little, God throws His questions at him and Job kind of shrinks before this mighty, powerful God. And verse 42, or chapter 42 and verse 5, Job says, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry I questioned I'm sorry I questioned your love for me. I'm sorry I questioned your care for me. I'm sorry I questioned your ability to be able to control these things. And God, because you've laid out your case before me, I see. I once heard it with my ears, but now I've seen you in your face. And I know that you are God. And I repent, Lord, I am sorry. I'm sorry for saying that you don't care. What I want you to see from all of this is that what changed Job wasn't some fresh revelation of why bad things happen to good people or why prayers go unanswered. The truth is, God didn't answer any of Job's questions. Instead, it was through a profound revelation of who God is that Job found true comfort in the midst of his pain. In fact, even though we know that Job had walked with God for many years before all of this, 
He repents because he said, I once heard about you, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything that I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Sometimes we complain that God does not answer. I'm wondering, is there any comfort for us when our prayers seem to go unanswered? Is there any comfort? Is there, in response to Jeremiah's question in our reading this morning, is there any balm in Gilead? And I want to say to you, yes, there is. Even when it doesn't seem that there's a direct answer to your prayer, that like Job, we can have a fresh revelation of who God is and know that He is the sovereign God, that God is in control. Do you know that today? That God's in charge, that He's sovereign over all. And there's comfort in that, I think. Even when there are no answers, there was for Job, there can be for us. And in spite of deep pain, Job is comforted, not because he's come to understand everything there is to know about prayer, not because he understands the nature of suffering, but Job is comforted because he has come to understand in a whole new way the Father's heart of love for him. That God loves him and God has a purpose for his life. And so I want to say to you this morning, if you're going through a painful trial right now, that you can go to bed tonight and turn out the lights and rest well. Not because you have a full set of answers to all of your questions of why. But you can go to bed tonight and rest secure because God is on the throne and He's in control. He is the one who caused the sun to rise over the eastern horizon this morning and He is the one who will cause it to set. He is the one who will cause the snows to come from the heavens along here in late October or early November or December or whenever He chooses. He is the one who causes the rains to fall. He knows when the mountain goats give birth. He sees every sparrow that falls. And if God cares that much about creation, how much more does He care for you and for me? He loves you with an everlasting love. And this brings us great comfort, even when it seems that our prayers go unanswered. The second truth. God doesn't purpose to make our lives easier. His sovereign purpose is to make our lives better by making us more like Jesus. I know I've said this before, but I want to say it again. That the good news of the gospel is not that God will provide a way to make your life and my life easier. The good news of the gospel for this life is that God will make a way for our lives to be more like Christ. He will use whatever He chooses to make us more like Jesus, and that will not always be an easy path. I have a particular beef right now with Western Christians, of which I'm a part. And here's the beef. Where do we come off thinking that our life as followers of Christ should always be easy and that we should always feel good. 
Because frankly, there are many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in spots around this world that are undergoing great suffering and huge persecution and are suffering for the cause of Christ. And what audacity do we have to think that God should make our life easy? Following Jesus, my friend, is not an easy path. The road to discipleship is sometimes a hard and rocky one. Somehow we've got this mistaken notion that God has come, that God is responsible to make my life good, to make my life easy, and that feeling good is always God's greatest priority for us. We assume that the nature of our spiritual journey is that God will make us prosperous, that He will make us financially prosperous and relationally prosperous and physically prosperous and emotionally prosperous. But what about those times of struggle? What do we do with that? It's so natural for us to think that at, our time, at times that our relationship with Jesus has no greater purpose than to improve the quality of our journey through this life. Make our life pleasurable. Make it life easy. Straighten out every crooked way and every rough way. Make it smooth. That our, our lives should be perfect and, and that every problem should be able to be resolved in 30 minutes like a, an episode of the Brady Bunch. Life is not that way. Life is hard. Following Christ involves discipline. And some of us have our dreams shattered because we believe that God has given up to, on us because some of us are facing hard roads. God is not committed to making our lives easier. But through the difficult times that come from time to time, even devastating times, God is always at work, always at work, making you and me more like Jesus. And that's His purpose, to make life better, not necessarily easier. The third and final truth, that whatever it is that we're going through, and no matter how frustrating the unanswered prayer is, the truth is this, that Scripture declares that God is a Savior. He will always rescue us, but He will not always rescue us how and when we think He may. God doesn't work on my timetable. God is not kind of like a, a, a pull-up vending machine that we pull out what we want. I need this right now, God. I need this right now. Our ways are not His ways. Our thoughts are not His thoughts. His thoughts are higher than ours. But God will always rescue us, but not always how and when we think. I think there's a, a beautiful example of this found in the early chapters of the book of Daniel. In the first three chapters of Daniel, we find the, the men of Israel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are not willing to bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar. And as a punishment, Nebuchadnezzar, throw, he binds, binds them up and he throws the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into the fiery furnace. And there's this wonderful little interchange, you ought to read it there, where Nebuchadnezzar asks his advisors, he looks into the fiery furnace, and he says to his advisors, did we not 
tie up three men and throw them into the fire? And his advisor said, yes. And he said, well, I've just looked into the fiery furnace and I see there not three men, but I see four men walking around in the fire and they are unbound and greater yet, these four men are unharmed. The flames are not touching them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, and the fourth man looks like the sons of God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had it almost right. But in that fire was not one of the sons of God, but in that fire was the son of God. Because in that fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you, That sometimes God does not choose. I don't understand. I don't have all the answers why. God sometimes does not choose to deliver us out of the furnace. But God chooses to deliver us through the furnace. In a very real way, that furnace that that engulfed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that looked like the end of their lives actually turned out to be the beginning of something entirely new and wonderful in their lives. It was no doubt the most incredible event in their whole life. And it took place in the midst of all the pain that they went through until they realized that God was with them in the fiery furnace. You see, just like it was for Job, the furnace turned out to be the place where God met them in a whole new way. I'm wondering what would happen if instead of constantly praying, Oh Lord, deliver me from this fiery trial. If instead we would pray to God and say, God, let your will be done. You do in me what you want to do. You fashion and shape me in the way you want to shape me. I put no strictures on you. I don't put you in a box. I don't confine you. God, have your way in my life. Just what might happen if we would do that? God wants to meet us in our fiery furnace. And what I want you to see here is that as much as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have cried out to be delivered from the furnace, that God in His sovereign plan and purpose decided that it wasn't His plan to deliver them from, but to deliver them through. In other words, it's in the middle of those storms. It's in the middle of those places that seems so terrifying and painful that we find Jesus right there with us. The fourth man. Jesus is telling us, I'll meet you in the furnace. Follow me. It may look dark to you. It may look dangerous. It may scare you. But you keep following me. I'll meet you in the furnace. Can you think back on a time when you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was with you in one of those life furnaces? Maybe you're in one of those furnaces right now. And you're praying to beat the band. You're praying, oh God, deliver me from this. Maybe your prayer is misplaced. Maybe you should be praying, Lord, have your way 
I trust in you. I trust in you to be with me and not to forsake me, to carry me through, to give me strength, to give me hope, to, to, to keep me holding on. I don't know what your furnace is today. It, it might be a, a situation in your life that is striking fear in your heart. It might be a situation with one of your children. It might be a situation in your marriage. It might be a struggle with depression. It might be the ongoing frustration over finances or just the daily stress of work or insecurity or or concern about the future. I don't know what your fiery furnace is today, but I do know this, that as you go through that furnace, that the Son of God is with you. And He has a plan for your life and He has a purpose for your life. It's not always to make your life easy and smooth sailing, But He has a purpose to make you more like Jesus. And for one reason or another, I don't understand all the whys. One reason or another, God in His sovereign plan, because His ways are not my ways and His thoughts are not my thoughts, He has allowed this furnace time in your life. I love the promise in Isaiah. Fear not, though you pass through the flames. They will not burn you. They will not destroy you. God says, when you go through the storm, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will rescue you. Maybe not in the way you thought I would. Maybe not in the timing that you wanted me to do it. But I will rescue you. All you need to do is wait and trust and hold on to me. So I believe in the power of prayer. I believe that James was right, that the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. I believe in the power of prayer because I believe in the God I pray to. He is a great God above all gods. There's none like Him. He's a holy God. He's a faithful God. He's a God who revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ, who shared our humanity in every respect, including the experience of God-forsakenness on the cross. I believe that God in Jesus listens, bends low, and hears our prayer, and He will answer in His time and in His way. And so even though my prayers seem to not be answered in the ways that I thought they would be or in the timing that I thought it would be, I I, I still continue to press on into the heart of God, knowing that the comfort that I find is a fresh revelation of who God is, knowing that He's committed more to make me more like Jesus and not necessarily make my life easier, and knowing that God in the end will rescue me. He will save, but not always how and when I think. No one has said this whole thing better, I think, than an anonymous Confederate soldier who penned these words, and and with this I close. I asked God for strength that I might achieve, but I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked God for health that I might do greater things, but God gave me infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy, 
But I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. But I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. But I was given life that I may enjoy all things. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. Christian, today, if you're struggling with the problem of unanswered prayer, my encouragement to you is this. There is comfort knowing that God is in control. Trust Him. You can be assured that God has a plan and a purpose, and that purpose includes making you more like Jesus. And Christian, hold on, because God's time is always the best time. His plan is always the best plan. And you can trust His love for you, even as you face the mystery of unanswered prayer. God, will you help me and all of us when we struggle to push you and squeeze you into our boxes, directing you to do this and that at our bidding, in our time, and in our way. Forgive us, God, because just like Job, Lord, you tell us that you are a great God and your ways are not our ways. Lord, we want to see your glory. We want to trust you in those furnace times in our life. And Lord, I know that there are some individuals in this room this morning that are in the midst of that furnace. And these situations look like the end. But Lord, through your grace and your mercy, you can actually make them to become the beginning of something entirely new and wonderful. So Lord, teach us, as the hymn writer says, teach us the patience of unanswered prayer and to hold on to you, our great and mighty God.